Hello, my rebels. So, you know, I've got a lot of opinions. Well, I've got some opinions about hamburgers. Um, you know, I, I should tell you that when I was a kid, I daydreamed about having a, t a talk show called What's Your Beef? And people would just call in and we would just start the conversation with, all right, Ezra here, what's your beef? And uh, you would just have some question, comment, or anecdote about uh, beef. And the show would be called What's Your Beef? And uh, for some strange reason, that never took off. I don't know. I just... Things seems like a good idea to me. Anyway, today we're gonna uh, in, in today in What's Your Beef? We talk about those Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers. And uh, let me just say this: uh, thumbs down. Um, before I get out of the way and l let you listen to my hamburger reviews, uh, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. That way, you get to watch the video. You get the video version of the podcast. And look, we're talking about hamburgers, people. You want to see them? That's half the burger experience. I mean, we taste with our tongue, and of course, a sense of smell is very important in eating, but you gotta see it, you gotta see it, folks. So to see the burgers, go to therebel.media slash shows and become a premium subscriber. And now I got myself all hungry. Okay, here's the show. You're listening to a Rebel Media Podcast. Tonight, what's behind the sudden wave of anti-meat propaganda? It's August 9th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon yeah. consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish is because it's my bloody right to do so. You can sometimes see an official narrative when it launches. For example, for years, no one talked about transgenderism. It just wasn't a thing. It was maybe an obscure anomaly, a curiosity. I mean, there have always been drag queens and transvestites, but it wasn't a big deal. And then suddenly it was. Bruce Jenner becoming Caitlyn Jenner, Woman of the Year. TV shows to little kids being dressed up in drag, dancing at strip clubs to the madness of Jonathan Yaniv. In five years, it's gone from nothing to the Olympics. I'm serious, you will see trans athletes competing against real women in the upcoming Olympics next year. Get ready for a ratings bust. I mean, seriously, it'll be weird and pitiful and sad watching men crush women in competitions. It'll be a lot of things, but it will not be sport. And my point is, suddenly the narrative was here, and suddenly it was everywhere, and I'm not sure where it quite came from. I see another narrative just launching right now. Maybe you see it too, anti-meat, anti-beef. I mean, like trans issues, it was always there, but it was always really fringe, almost a joke. I mean, there are vegetarians for religious reasons, I get it, and there may be some health reasons for some people, but it's always been a bit fringe. Greenpeace is anti-meat, but they'll say anything for a buck. It was always marginal until really in just the last few months when the narrative hit. You'd see it in weird, creepy stories like like the United Nations, whose executives dine in five-star restaurants, that UN telling the rest of us that we'll start, we'll have to start eating bugs and light. I'm not making this up. This is a this is not an image from a satirical or parody website. This is actually the United Nations telling us to eat bugs. Yeah, you first, you pompous diplomat bureaucrats. The Washington Post loves the idea of eating bugs. Oh my God. Now here's how the owner of the Washington Post actually lives. Here's his luxury yacht. That's Jeff Bezos. 
Only the finest meats and other foods for him. He ain't eating bugs, but his newspaper tells you to eat bugs. Even the Weather Network told us to stop eating beef. The weather people, if you really want to save the planet, they say, you could seriously consider limiting the amount of beef you eat. They tweeted that. Really? That, that's not news. That's not science. It's certainly not weather. That's propaganda. Stick to telling me if it's going to rain tomorrow, guys. Uh, practice getting that right first. Don't tell me what to do with my life. So weird. And then they linked, I don't know if you saw the Twitter, linked to a video that sounds like, well, you know, frankly, it sounds like it's pushing a meat alternative, like, a, like an ad. Here, watch this, through, watch this through to the end. It sounds like it's everything except mentioning like some soy meat ad. It's like the preamble to an ad. Take a listen. If you want to save the planet, you might want to think about cutting back on the amount of beef you eat. So how much do you need to cut back? How about a burger and a half every week? That's the latest research from the World Resources Institute. It's all based on just how much food it's going to take to feed our planet by the time 2050 arrives. There is expected to be about 10 billion people on the planet then. In their latest report, they say Americans will need to cut back by about 40% and Europeans will have to eat about 22% less beef if we're going to feed everyone. So why is beef getting the brunt of it? Well, cows require about 20 times more land, and they make more than 20 times more greenhouse gas than growing certain plants do. Cows also grow and reproduce slower than pigs and chickens, so they need more food and water. Before you balk at saying bye-bye to beef, the report says it's actually pretty doable. Beef only accounts for a small percentage of the calories we eat on a daily basis. Plus, there's a lot of beef alternative options out there today. So it ends by talking about meat alternatives. It's priming the pump. I'll get back to that in a moment. But here's news just, just right now. Here's Canada's Environment Minister, Catherine McKenna. Environment Minister Catherine McKenna says the call to help combat climate change by eating more plants and less meat is fully in line with Canada's new food guide recommendations. It just never ends with these people. I mean, they literally flew their own private chef from Canada all the way to India for Trudeau's disastrous trip there. They'll spend seriously more than 100 grand on meals for a single flight. You see that one there, 142 grand? But uh, they're telling you and me to eat less meat. You know, in the past, before the Industrial Revolution, before the Agricultural Revolution, before the emancipation of the serfs, eating meat was a luxury reserved for the aristocracy. We, we don't live like that now. We're, we're all allowed to eat meat and eggs and chicken and whatever the hell we want. It's not like the Soviet Union, where you had to queue in line for hours or bribe some communist official to get eggs and meat. But today, our ruling class tells us we can't, or at least we shouldn't. That's Catherine McKenna coming out against beef. Just for us, the little people, though. I see that next month, Catherine McKenna is hosting a luxury fundraiser at Ottawa's fanciest restaurant. I won't call it a steakhouse because they serve much more than just steak. They serve every kind of meat. Um, the restaurant is called Becta. The fundraiser is 250 bucks just to get in. So yeah, you little people, can you please give up your hamburgers? Come on, for the sake of the planet, while the ruling class will eat its steak. Catherine McKenna says it's fine for her, so you can trust her. Where did this all come from? Well, obviously, follow the money. 
Everywhere you look, there are vegetarian fake meat meals being introduced onto menus, including by fast food restaurants like Tim Hortons, the formerly Canadian company that has since been bought by a Brazilian hedge fund. They're promoting their fake meat and now their fake eggs, and news media are running ads as if it's news. I mean, is this a news story? This is on the CBC State Broadcaster, which is part of the anti-meat campaign, but is this actually news? Because this appeared on CBC News. Let me read. Plant-based eggs join meatless options at Tim Hortons. Customers are buying in because the alternatives to meat taste like the real thing. I'm, I'm sorry, that, that that's news? Let me read to you some more from this deep investigative journalism. I sense a Pulitzer Prize coming. As a committed vegan, Sally Shaker Elma's menu choices are limited, so she was pleased to discover this week that her local Tim Hortons now offers its meatless breakfast sandwich with a vegan-friendly topping, a plant-based eggless omelette. It is such a step forward, says Shaker Elmas, who lives in Kitchener, Ontario. Wow, that's, that's some hard-hitting news reporting. Here's some more. Shaker Elmas says Tim Horton's eggless omelets is also tasty, just like the real thing. It's so really good, she said after trying it twice. They're doing something outside of the box. I swear to God that was published in the news section of the CBC State Broadcaster. Is, is, that, is that news? Is Tim Hortons paying for that? And would the CBC tell us if they were? I mean, it's all of a sudden, I, I think, beef is bad, at least for the little people. Is, is this a health thing? I don't know. There, there might be reasons to be vegetarian, but, but actually a, a fair number of media have debunked these fake meat substitutes. Just look at what these meat substitutes contain in them. Here's the National Post analysis. You can Google this pretty easily for yourself. The National Post compared a leading brand of fake meat called Beyond Meat to a real meat hamburger. Let me quote. A 113 grand Beyond Meat patty has 250 calories, 18 grams of fat, 390 milligrams of sodium, and 20 grams of protein. Health Canada says 113 grams of lean ground beef contains 292 calories, 16.5 grams of fat, 105 milligrams of sodium, and um, 33 grams of protein. So that's a lot of numbers I just threw at you, so let me just simplify it. The fake meat has about the same number of calories as the real meat. The fake meat actually has more fat. That's impressive to achieve. The fake meat has triple the salt. I'm not surprised. How else are you going to make processed vegetable protein taste palatable? And you're only getting about half the protein with the fake meat. It's hyper-processed. I mean, look, there's no way you can actually say those Beyond Meat patties are good for you. Fat, salt, calories, whatever's in there, all the processing. I'm not sure why anyone would eat it. It's not going to make you lose weight. And I can't see how it's heart smart, all that salt. Uh, look, I'm no doctor. And look, <laughs> don't take diet advice from me. But I thought health foods had less salt and fat than the foods they're supposed to replace. If simply taking the meat out of things made them healthier, then hell, I'd eat ice cream and french fries all day. I'd, it would be my miracle diet. So why is everyone from the United Nations to the Washington Post to Catherine McKenna to the CBC telling us not to eat meat anymore? Well, follow the money. Just a few months ago, Beyond Meat, the company behind so many of these restaurants, 
rolling out their high-fat, high-salt, high-calorie veggie burgers. They did an IPO, an initial public offering. At the stock market, they raised a quarter billion dollars, which put the whole company's valuation at $1.5 billion. Look at that share price. Take a look. The share price skyrocketed this spring and summer. It, it, it was like a rocket from $65 a share to $235 a share just last month. You see that on the chart? That's billions of dollars, people. Now, look at the last month. The stock price has actually plummeted, fallen back enormously, back down $162, but still higher when they launched. But that's, that's a billion dollars wiped out from their market cap. Can I ask you a question? If building up a pro-veggie burger hype would make you a millionaire or even a billionaire, how much money would you spend promoting anti-meat propaganda, pushing your gross high-fat, high-salt, high-calorie veggie burgers? Well, if you're spending millions to make billions, that's just smart. I don't know what Beyond Meat's marketing strategy is like. I don't know if they're paying influencers on, on, on Twitter or social media. It would be nuts if they didn't. I know that they've been lobbying up a storm on Parliament Hill, including lobbying for the food guide to have more plant crap in it. But bloggers, reporters, Twitters, the Weather Network, the CBC, reporters on the side, I don't know. I know this. If you follow the money to the groups who demonize another great Canadian industry, oil and gas, the people paying for the demonization usually are competitors to Canadian oil and gas. It's very illuminating to me to note that, for example, the extremist groups fighting against Canada's oil sands, they never complain about OPEC oil and gas. They just never do. That, that's odd, isn't it? It's not odd at all. They all happen to take foreign funding to attack Canadian oil, much of it laundered through the Tides Foundation in San Francisco, which hides the ultimate source of the funds. That's not odd at all. That's follow the money. I wonder if that might be afoot here. If I were a fake meat billionaire, if my vast wealth depended on demonizing beef, I'd push that propaganda. I'd push the lie that my sawdust burgers tasted great. Hell, what doesn't when you pack it with salt and, well, a burger, just make sure there's lots of ketchup and fixings on it and people will eat anything, right? Especially when influencers tell them, well, if you don't eat this expensive sawdust, we're all going to die from global warming, and it's all your fault, millennials. I don't know what Catherine McKenna's angle is. She's probably just doing some virtual signaling, as always. Maybe she actually believes the propaganda, except for at her own fundraisers. Look, nobody's willing to pay $250 a plate to eat some sawdust sandwiches. That's what this is, though. In my mind, it's, it's the Tesla, it's the Prius, but for meat. No one real drives a Tesla because they run out of battery life before you get anywhere. And it's far too expensive for a real family. A Tesla is a show-off car to show people not only how wealthy you are, but how virtuous you are. I think that's the real market here. People who eat Beyond Meat probably spend 15 minutes eating a sawdust hamburger, but 45 minutes telling everybody they just ate a sawdust hamburger. White Castle, the U.S. burger chain, uh, chain that specializes in really little, really cheap hamburgers, those little sliders, they call them, um, they know what's going on. You can buy a little White Castle slider for 77 cents. 77 cents for a tiny little burger. But their Impossible Burger, that's, that's another brand of fake meat, it's a buck 99 for tiny little slider. Doesn't taste as good, but that's not what you're buying. You're buying the snobbery. It's weird to buy it at White Castle, but you know. Hey, speaking of fake weirdness and woke narratives, remember that Gillette ad that mocked men as violent animals? Remember that one? 
It was a direct insult, an attack on masculinity itself and any man who believed in maleness. And most weird, it was an attack on Gillette ads of the past. Um, oh, and color me shocked, Gillette just posted an $8 billion loss. How do you do that? I guess it turns out that men don't want to pay to be insulted for being men. I mean, imagine deciding that to sell razors to men. You're going to hire a creative director who is a feminist activist specializing in woke leftist politics? Gee, who, who would have guessed that would, <laughs> wouldn't have worked? I see that so far McDonald's has avoided the weirdness of the veggie burger. Now, maybe they're missing the boat. Maybe they just don't understand their business model. Maybe the future of hamburger eaters um, is Prius driving, soy meat eating, global warming, weeping feminists with Gillette razors. It could be. Or maybe McDonald's actually really, really does listen to its customers and knows them very well because they don't want to lose $8 billion a year on some personal fad or indulgence. Maybe their customers, including many low-income people, maybe they just want a hamburger without all the preening and, and without paying triple for it, like at White Castle for the Impossible Burger. And, you know, maybe they don't want salt and sawdust. And if Catherine McKenna won't eat that crap, why should they? Stay with us for more. One of the strangest things about our citizen journalism that the uh, internet has brought us is that people are sharing private thoughts things that in the past would be in a personal diary, well, they're putting them online, sometimes to spectacular publicity. Let me show you an article that I find shocking and repulsive, but after those emotions pass, I find it deeply, deeply sad. It's an article in the Huffington Post called, It Might Be Time to Cut My Right-Wing Trump-Loving In-Laws Out of My Kids' Lives. And it goes on at some length about how a leftist activist, who, by the way, happens to be Jewish, is more and more offended by the politics of her uh, husband's parents, who happen to be conservative Catholics, that she says, and she's saying this all to the public, she no longer wants them to have any access to her kids, their grandchildren. And I, I find it appalling to air this kind of family laundry in public, but I find it ubiquitous. Mothers writing with their real names how they deeply regret having children. I say with their real names because their children will read that article. Is this a phenomenon just on the left? I've only seen it on the left. I can't imagine someone who's conservative would say such a thing, at least not in public. Joining us now via Skype to talk about this is someone who's done some thinking and talking back on this issue. I'm talking about our friend Michael Knowles. He's with the dailywire.com where he has a daily podcast. It's every day, Monday to Thursday at 1.45 Eastern time. That's 10.45 Pacific time. And we're thrilled to have him for about 15 minutes right now. Michael, what do you think about this article? I found it profoundly sad and her children, I think, will find it sad uh, when they're old enough to understand it too. That's my hunch. Certainly, I first found this article because a left-wing relative of mine actually sent it to me. I think in a mostly joking manner, I'm going to choose to read it that way. But this is a phenomenon that is happening almost exclusively 
on the left. You've seen this in study after study. Left-wingers are much more likely to unfriend or disconnect from right-wingers on social media platforms than the other way around. It seems that the right is able to hear different ideas and keep relationships with people who have different views of the world, but the left is not able to do this, and I think this is for a few reasons. One, it began in the 1960s. The radicals of the 60s, who today are the college professors and the parents and the grandparents, were the people who said that the personal is the political. So previously in this country, we had a separation between public and political and what we had in our personal lives. So you could fight against one another all day long and have political differences, but then have a cocktail at the end of the day. And the 1960s obliterated that. They, they uh, focused much more intensely on uh, the politics of the personal. And so uh, it, you would have this situation in which if a family member even doesn't like the political views of another family member, they would cut them off. And uh, uh, very often, like you saw in that Huffington Post article, you have conservative family members who say, are you crazy? Are you really going to break up a family over some political issue, over some candidate or some politician? And they'll say, yes, absolutely, because it's about morality. And to them, uh, to those people on the left, which has become increasingly, if not entirely secular over the last 50 years, the reason that they feel so strongly that their moral convictions are bound up in, in mere policies is because their politics has become their religion. So conservatives, people on the right, are much more likely to hold to a traditional religion, orthodox religious views. They go to church on Sunday, that sort of thing. On the left, the members of the Democratic Party in America and on the left broadly are highly irreligious. I mean, the numbers of people who believe in God in the Democratic Party are somewhere in the low 20s, 22, 23%. And so because nature abhors a vacuum and everybody's got to serve somebody, we do have a spiritual inclination. We do have a religious inclination toward us on the left has put that into activism and into politics. It's terribly sad because it, it gets the world exactly backwards. You know, as Andrew Breitbart, the patron saint of Hollywood conservatives, used to say, politics is downstream of culture. Culture is downstream of religion. You know, the cult and the culture come from the same word. What a culture worships defines that culture. And when you look at the left and the way that they view things, it's exactly backwards. First is politics, because the politics is the religion that creates the culture and it creates a vicious cycle. Terribly sad, and as we've seen in the past week, with um, not just fringe people, but the mainstream left in this country, pundits, politicians, presidential candidates, calling half of America white supremacist, calling the president white supremacist, calling for their murder, celebrating their murder, you have to come to the conclusion, a very sad conclusion, that the left doesn't merely disagree with us, they actually hate us. They actually despise half of their countrymen. I, I wonder how much of that uh, requires them to be publicly preening about it. Like I was thinking of a very prestigious publication where someone said she was divorcing her husband merely because he voted for Trump. And I found that insane and absurd. Imagine throwing away a life together with someone because they voted differently than you. Uh, I guess that's a reason to have secret ballots. But I thought to myself, maybe the writing of it, the public humiliation of it, is a form of boasting, saying, I am so righteous, I'm so pure, that I will let the whole world know what I've done. Instead of proving your righteousness or purity or holiness by doing a good deed, 
Um, that, that I can't think of a, I mean, I don't regard it as virtue signaling to say I'm, I'm divorcing my spouse over politics. But for someone who thinks that's a, a litmus test, well, then you've got to tell the whole world. It's like vegans. You know, half the fun of being a vegan is telling every bloody person that you're a vegan. Maybe when you're that far down the road, you have to write these things in the Huffington Post because your other friends will say, wow, you're a hard line. I'm impressed. Of course, this reminds me of the time that a vegan, an atheist, and a soul cycler walked into a bar. The only reason I know it is because they wouldn't shut up about it. <laughs> there does seem to be something on the left that requires this boasting. And you say it's not virtue signaling to brag about how you're going to divorce your wife over politics or divorce your husband. But And of course, you're right. It's the opposite of virtue signaling. It's vice signaling. But we have seen in the, the left, especially in recent years, not just a mere perversion of morality, but a total inversion. So for instance, just a month ago, the left celebrated the, the biggest month of the entire secular liturgical calendar, which is Pride Month. And it's not just celebrating gay people or people with differing uh, sexual preferences. It's now celebrating fat pride, skinny pride, slut pride, this pride, that pride, all these different kinds of pride. The key to it is the pride. And of course, it seems so strange to us because pride, as we remember, is the deadliest of the seven deadly sins. It's the queen of all sins. But in the left's perverse moral order, pride becomes the greatest virtue. And so conservatives who typically tend to subscribe to a traditional sense of the virtues would say that humility, humility is the greatest uh, virtue. It's the beginning of the virtues. So that, you know, let's say my wife votes differently than I do, heaven forfend. You know, perhaps we have the intellectual and political humility to say, look, I don't know everything. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she's wrong. We're all broken. Thank goodness we have someone to cling to in this tumultuous life that we're living in. But on the left, there, there's none of that, because if politics is their religion, it's not a terribly satisfying religion. They have a gnawing sense of the, their own imperfection of their human nature. But there's no redemption in that leftist politics. There is the you're trying desperately for redemption. You're trying desperately to recycle. That's one act of atonement. You're, you're going to divorce your husband for voting for Trump. That's an act of atonement. But it never quite, get, quite gets you there. That guilt is just always on you, be it white guilt, straight guilt, American guilt, whatever it is. I mean, th this is a, a perverse ideology that is literally driving people mad, driving them to leave their families, divorce their husbands, and scream and shout in the streets. It's not sane, it's not stable, but in a, in a culture that has lost the narrative, in a culture that is, has lost the sense of its foundation, religion and then culture, it's no surprise that the politics would get wacky too. You know, I, I think uh, one reason why liberals or leftists do this more than conservatives is because conservatives always have to deal with liberals and leftists. Even if you grow up in a very conservative place, I was born and raised in Calgary when it was even more conservative than it is now. Um, but even in a conservative place, even if you grew up in the most conservative part of Texas or West Virginia, you would be exposed to liberal and leftist thinking all the time through the media, through movies, through anything that emanates from Hollywood or New York. So you're used to the other half. But I'm just looking, for example, at this Hannah Selinger, who wrote this grotesque piece against her own in-laws. Imagine writing that and being her in-laws and reading this in the Huffington Post. And I look at her. It's going to be an awkward Thanksgiving. Yeah. Well, and, and that's something that the left always talks about, how to take on your right-wing uncle over Thanksgiving. Like, they just try to turn these family events into political battles. But I'm looking at her biography. 
She's a lifestyle writer based in East Hampton, New York, East Hampton, New York. And she's, her work has appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And I'm just thinking of that book that Charles Murray wrote called Coming Apart, is how insular these uh, elites are, these high IQ, high uh, income elites who only know each other. And my point is, I was growing up in Calgary, a right wing place, but of course I knew the liberal lines, I had liberal friends, I had to be exposed to liberal ideas. But if you grow up in East Hampton, New York, and mm -hmm. all the other people you talk to are you know, identical to you, you don't know there is another side. So when they in, impose or incur into your life, you find it outrageous because you've never had to deal with them before. If every conservative blacklisted, blackballed, and shunned a liberal in their life, we'd be extremely lonely. But it's possible for leftists to live 20, 30, 40 years without ever encountering a Christian, a conservative, uh, a blue-collar Trumpist. I think that's the difference, is that uh, the people who call themselves progressive and open-minded often have never met someone who's not identical to them. Yes, of course this is true. Uh, having grown up, I've always been in liberal places, but even if I hadn't, even if I grew up in the heart of Texas, because the popular culture is totally left-wing, we are exposed to those ideas. So for instance, I can explain, more or less, just about any leftist policy position. I don't agree with those positions, but I understand the argument. This is not because of any particular virtue of my own. I've just been exposed to it so much that I can articulate that. And yet, the left does not know what conservatives think. I think this is why they get so mad. I think this is why they scream and shout. People who know what they're talking about, people who are confident in what they think and what they're saying, don't need to scream and shout. We're calm. We understand what we're saying. But when you don't, you, you get so upset, so outraged. And to bring up the example of Thanksgiving dinner, you know, the left all the way up to the Obama administration, all the way up to the White House when Obama was president, would send out letters and say, here's how to convince your uncle to be a leftist over Thanksgiving. And you think, why on earth would I do that? In that Huffington Post article, the woman sent a long text message ranting to her mother-in-law. And the mother-in-law said, oh, thank you for your comments. The mother-in-law hears it. She probably already knew what the kid thought and just said, okay, well, thank you. I see you've expressed your opinion, but she didn't engage with it. And what you're seeing in that text message, what you're seeing in this Thanksgiving table evangelization of leftist politics is the zeal of an evangelist yeah. because leftist politics have become a religion to the left such that for me, I'm a Catholic. I would like uh, all of my friends and family to be baptized. I'm not going to go out there and uh, constantly be proselytized. But I might, uh, I, I do have an interest in that. I have an interest in the eternal soul of my friends and family. And for the left, there is no religion to fill that void. It's leftist politics. So they're not just trying to make sure that I get to heaven someday. They're trying to make sure that I vote for the leftist Democratic candidate come next election. Mm. That is a much more urgent religious uh, appeal. And it's why they have the zeal of converts and the zeal of evangelists. Yeah, that's very sad, I think. Michael, I'm grateful for your time. I know you've got to run. We're always, uh, it's always great to talk with you, and I would like to encourage our viewers to tune in. Uh, the Daily Wire, lots of good stuff all the time, but Michael Knowles has a show every Monday to Thursday. It's at, on at 1.45 Eastern. It's, a, uh, it's called The Michael Knowles Show, and I encourage you to listen. Thanks so much, my friend. Great to see you again. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. All right, there you have it. Stay with it. More ahead on The Rebel.
Hey, welcome back on my monologue yesterday about an Edmonton imam preaching hate. Ron writes, the imam Shaban Sheriff Mady calls Trudeau the Najashi. Suspect he will say the same about Sheer if he gets elected prime minister. He could be right, Ron. I remember um, not too long ago uh, doing a little um, report to you about Andrew Sheer hanging out with another imam named Subadar, Omar Subadar, who gave lectures about the proper way to beat your wife. Uh, he had rules, and he, he was saying this in English, by the way. He teaches thousands of Muslims in the greater Toronto area. So if Andrew Shear will meet with the Toronto expert in wife beating, um, he could well be the next Najashi. Robert writes, nothing to see here. Our hapless prime minister is certain this man can be a powerful voice in our communities. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you heard him. Uh, talking about the Islamic State and Mujahideen and jihadists. And um, yeah, no problem. I mean, uh, no, no politicians, no human rights commissions, no, no problem there. On my interview with Lauren Gunter about the United Nations Relief Works Agency, UNRWA, that's the Palestinian Refugee Agency, Paul writes, Trudeau has been very generous all over the world with taxpayer money, especially when it comes to funding terrorist organizations, abortions, and tyrants. Liberal priorities on display. Is there an organization in the UN that isn't riddled with corruption? Yeah, of course, the UN uh, Relief Works Agency isn't a terrorist organization themselves, but they do subsidize and provide moral and political cover for terrorist organizations like Hamas. They preach uh, a, a an apology for terrorism in their textbooks in, in Gaza Strip. I think it's awful. And when you've got all these European leftists who don't really hate Israel, when they're so grossed out by the corruption um, at the UN Relief Works Agency that they're pulling out their money, um, you know it's got to be bad if that's happening. But no, yeah, Krista Freeland, Justin Trudeau, it's just all about the optics, and they want to be called the Najashi. They want that Muslim vote in Canada. If it means giving money to a terrorist-sympathizing, corrupt organization in Gaza. They'll do that every day of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. Let me give you a quick update. I went to, for those who are interested, I went to uh, the UK uh, last night to visit Tommy Robinson in Belmarsh Prison. And uh, despite the indignities of the place, I think his health is generally good and he's been treated generally well. They are violating some of his rights. They haven't given him any snail mail since his very first day in prison. He's been in prison 29 days now, but they've just refused to give him his mail. They claim the counterterrorism police have to go through it first. It's such a, it's so bizarre. But uh, that's the state of the UK. That's what Canada will be like uh, for us in a few years. Hey guys, if I get thrown in prison for my journalism, can one of you come and maybe bring me a good, you know, smoke meat sandwich or something? Just booking ahead for when it happens. All right, guys, have a great weekend. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, good night. Keep fighting for freedom.